have a Bible, turn to the book of Malachi chapter 3. We'll read that text to begin, but we'll be in several places this morning. I want to read for us this morning Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. This is God's holy word. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? And your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Will you pray with me? Father, it is, uh, it's important, I believe, Lord, that you remind us of the truths that we have heard and sung. We love your word. Your word is perfect. Your laws, your precepts, your teachings, it's all perfect. And it's important that we remember what we've sung. This is my Father's world. And there's not one little part of this, there's not one little part of me that does not belong to you. Take that and instill it in us so that we can study your word fairly and faithfully this morning. God, I pray that you'll do the work this day. We ask it in Christ's name. You can be seated. What is the chief end of man? What is the highest priority of the human being? You want to tell me, don't you? <laughs> Why do we exist? We exist for the glory of God, don't we? We exist to honor the Lord. All right. What is the chief end of man? See, they know already. From the Westminster Catechism to glorify God and enjoy Him forever is our chief end. Do you buy that? That's the question. Do you believe it? You think about this, because if that's true, and this is going to feel weird for me to say to you, because not all of you think this is true, you exist for worship. God made you for worship. That's why you breathe because to glorify God and enjoy Him, to glorify God by enjoying Him, to glorify God by humbly submitting to Him and obeying Him, that is worship. And that's why you exist. Think about how your life changes if you truly believe that the reason you exist is to worship the Lord your God. It changes how you use your time. It changes how you look at gathering together as a church. It changes how you sing. I'm not saying it makes you sing better, but it changes the heart you have as you go to it, right? It changes how you pray. It changes how you listen to the Word of God when it's rightly preached. It changes how you approach Lord's Supper. It changes how you give. And today we're going to take some time to consider the topic, the principle of giving as worship. The passage we read this morning, that was the sermon text, really, from last week. Some of you probably were afraid that I had accidentally started over. And it set for us the stage for today's message. I want us to remember what we learned last week. Then we're going to look at how we show God honor in giving as believers. By the time we got to Malachi chapter 3, God has established in this book that the people of Israel have not worshipped him rightly. They've questioned his love and his faithfulness. They have despised his name, God says. They have refused to honor him. They refuse to fear him. They have offered God unacceptable sacrifices at the temple. 
The priests have refused to rightly teach the word of God to the people. The priests have shown favoritism to the rich, and they've been nasty to the poor. The priests have been unfaithful to their marriage vows by divorcing their wives and running into the arms of women who worship false gods. And the people then had the audacity to accuse God of not being just, of not properly punishing sin, even though they themselves are first in line for the wrath of God. And God promised the people that he would come and that he would judge, but they would not be able to stand on that day. In chapter 3, verse 7, after God said in verse 6 he doesn't change, verse 7 he says something wonderful to the nation. If you will return to me, God says, I will be faithful to return to you. God is offering them his grace, his forgiveness. If Israel would but repent and believe in God, God would bless them in glorious ways as he had already promised to do. But the people were foolish. They asked God, well, how do you want us to return, God? What possible thing would we need to change in order to return? And God could have pointed back to the sins of chapters 1 through 3. But God chose to cite one more grievance, which we saw last week. The Lord said that the people of Malachi's day had been robbing him in the areas of offerings, contributions, and tithes. They were not giving as they should. It was dishonoring to God. It was showing that they did not fear God. It was showing that they would not obey God. It was showing that they did not trust that God could provide for them. But God said in verses 10 through 12, if the nation would repent, he would bless them like crazy. He would show this nation that even if they thought they couldn't afford to obey his commands by giving as he had commanded, if they would obey, God said to that particular people, if you guys will obey me here, I will give you everything you could possibly ever need to live and to rejoice in my blessing. And we learned last week we want to honor God by obeying his commands. And we learned that giving faithfully is a way to show proper fear of and trust in the Lord. But we left a question sort of fluttering about how do Christians give? So this morning I want to revisit the issue of the tithe and the offerings that were there and, and what the Bible says to you and me about faithful giving. We're going to travel through the Old Testament to the New Testament to try to glean some principles and make a few applications to the lives of Christians. And yes, this is different than what we normally do here. If you're new here, uh, God bless you for coming this week, but we are doing something that's more akin to a, a brief biblical theology of giving. Uh, we're not a topically based church often, but it made sense for us to look at this this week because questions need to be answered. I believe that the concept of the tithe that we came across in the study of Malachi warrants more examination, and I think we need to do our best to get it right. And uh, I'll tell you, just honestly, just me and you here, don't tell the others here in the room, but just me and you, I'm not uber comfortable talking about giving because it's just not a comfortable topic, but I would not serve you faithfully as a pastor if I ignore things that the Word of God tells us to do. So let's start in the book of Genesis. How about it? Genesis 14, 18 through 20, gives us the picture of the first tithe in the Bible. It says in Genesis 14, 18 and following, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Genesis 14, you guys remember this story? Abram had to mount a rescue operation to bring home his nephew Lot, who had been taken away by enemies. And after Abram and his household went and defeated this whole group of kings and, and he brought Lot home, he was on his way and, and on the way Abram was met by a priest by the name of Melchizedek. 
and, and Melchizedek, he meets Abram, and he brings out bread and wine. Does that remind you of anything, by the way? little subtle Old Testament pointer to communion, a little subtle Old Testament reminder that one, once the whole word of God is finished, we're going to see Jesus in this passage. But, but Abram, for his part, responds in worship to God. How? He gives a tenth of the spoil that he had taken from the battle to the priest Melchizedek, the first tithe in Scripture. Now, later, Jacob, Abram's grandson, I told you this last week, he encounters the Lord at Bethel, and he also will promise God a tithe of his income as, as a response of worship to God uh, for when God pr would preserve him and bring him home. You can read that later in Genesis 28, 22. And what makes these tithes interesting, where we, where we do have to start to think about the issue of giving here, it's the fact that both of these occur before the giving of the Levitical law to the nation of Israel. This is outside the original giving of the law. These are not offerings that God commanded, thou shalt giveth a tenth. Instead, these two tithes are freely given, or they're freely promised as acts of worship. So one thing we want to do right away is not assume that the only time a tithe is ever talked about in the Bible is inside Old Testament law, inside the borders, inside the, the boundaries of the nation of Israel, per se. There seems to be a hint that this kind of giving to the honor of God is a good thing. Now, why did they give like this? Why did Abram give like this? Why did Jacob promise what he promised? Don't you think it's simple? They wanted to honor God. They wanted, they, they wanted, um, they wanted to show that God was number one. They, they wanted to show that they were grateful for the grace of God. They wanted to indicate by how they gave that God's number one. Now let me ask you, regardless of percentages, do you think any of those principles have gone away? That we want to show God as number one, honor God, show gratitude to God, remind ourselves that God owns all things. That's what they did. Well, what about within the law of God? That, that's another sort of section where you see these principles most taught. And I'll, I'll cover them. Again, we talked about them in, in brief last week, but I want to actually read the scriptures with them because there's at least one of these I really want you to see because I think it's a load of fun and we need some of that here. So first of all, in Leviticus 27, 30 and 32, the word of God says, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And verse 32 says, And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. So years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when God led Israel up out of Egypt, he established a covenant with the nation. You guys remember this if you know your Bibles, right? Is that new? That's not new, right? You're with me. Okay. In the old covenant, God delivered the law. And the law showed the nation much about the character of God. Does the law not teach us wonderful things about the Lord? And it showed the people how to honor God and how to rightly love people made in the image of God. And it taught Israel how to live as a nation and how to worship God as a people of God and how to behave in accord with the standards of God. And in, a, in the middle of all of this, stuck right in there included in the law, was that God claimed the right to one-tenth, to the tithe, of everything the people had. God said, the land is mine. I want to remind you by requiring you, Israel, people living in my borders under my protection as part of my covenant, I'm going to require tithing, giving a tenth from you. Actually, if you study the law a little closer, you're going to find that a lot of people would say to you that God's law required three separate tithes. Uh, one of them is in Numbers 18.28. You can flip there if you want. The Deuteronomy one is the one I want you to see with your eyes. But Numbers 18.28 reads as follows. So you shall also present a contribution to the Lord from all your tithes which you receive from the people of Israel. And from it you shall give the Lord's contribution to Aaron the priests. 
One of the tithes and one of the purposes of the tithe from the people of Israel was to be given for the support of the temple ministry. The funds would provide for the Levites as a tribe because they had charge of the temple or the tabernacle and they had charge of its service. The tribe of Levi was not, if you remember, given lands to cultivate and farm and make their own profit. So the people of Levi needed other people to meet their physical needs. So that verse there was talking to the priests about how to handle the tithes that they had been given. The Levites get a tithe, they give a tithe of the tithe, they take care of the priests. It was just all the concept of there's a tenth of the income of the Israelites that is to go to the priestly system to keep the tabernacle or the temple up and running and keep the Levites taken care of as they take care of the ministry. But then do turn to Deuteronomy 14 for me. And we're going to look at verses 22, 1 through 27. Again, the reason I'm, quote, I'm telling you to turn there is this is just too fascinating. This is also the part of the sermon where I need more of you to have paper because I have no idea when you've gotten there if you're flicking on your phone. Thank you. Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 27 reads as follows. Here's, here's the second tithe. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always." And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithes when the Lord God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. All right, be honest. Is that not one of the most fascinating things you've ever read out of the Old Testament? Some of you are going, hey, huh? So this is the second tithe. And it has to do with the festivals that were part of the Hebrew religious calendar. If you know your Old Testament, you know the big traveling holidays, right? Three times per year, the people were to gather where would they gather? Well, once everything gets settled in the land, they go to Jerusalem. That was the place where God said his name would rest. And these observances were to take place at Jerusalem. People would travel to Jerusalem at Passover in the first month, at Pentecost, or the, the first fruits, right, the, uh, the uh, 50 days after Passover. And then they would go at the Festival of Booths in the seventh month, which would take them, actually, you get a two-week break there because you would go for the Festival of Booths and then... Um, stuff that came after that. So the Lord commanded the faithful Israelite to take a second tithe of his income, be it grain, money, livestock, whatever, and bring the tithe to Jerusalem. Now, if you had done really well and you had a big old pile of grain, you might think, this does not sound fun to carry all that to Jerusalem. Well, if you don't live there, it's okay. You could sell your grain, take the money, you go to Jerusalem with the money. But look at the command at verse 23. The Israelite family, what were they supposed to do with this tithe? Look at verse 23, and you tell me, what was the job of the family with this tithe? Eat it! They were to eat it. Not the money. If you only brought money because you were too far, because you didn't want to walk the cattle, you didn't want to try to carry the grain, verse 26 says, spend the money for whatever you desire. Then it gives you a list of things you might choose. Oxen, sheep, you know. Are, are, you, are you more of a barbecue person? Are you a leg of lamb person, right? Wine or strong drink. Um, whatever your appetite craves, 
and you eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. Do you see how fun that looks? God is commanding these people to take a tenth of everything they get. This is the second tithe. And it is to be provision for a celebration. God is commanding the people to eat, drink, and be merry. And verse 27 says, by the way, don't leave out the Levites. They don't have any income unless you give it to them. Verse 23 says, all of this is to be done. Why? Look at verse 23 and see what the outcome is of this. Why do it? It is so the people might learn to fear the Lord. Something about actually saving up, traveling to Jerusalem, celebrating, sharing with others in the family of God would help the people of God to properly honor God, respect God, put God first. Now again, you just got to think how cool this is. God tells the people three holidays, food, drink, rejoicing. It's all part. Everybody saves up. You guys have a blowout three times a year. And you're supposed to do it in honor of the Lord. Now, don't think that anyone's being irreverent here, right? There's no command here that you be drunk. There's no, in fact, drunkenness is a sin. There's no commandment for gluttony. Gluttony is a sin. But there is from God the freedom to have food, wine, drink. It was to be a glorious, happy celebration, you might say, well, how in the world, pastor, is that worship? When the people of God celebrate in the Lord, when we give funds for the sake of the ability to gather together and share with the people of God and rejoice in the name of God, we show the world around us that God is our joy and God is of utmost importance. This was not people running, spending every day of their life to chase after wealth. This was a people setting aside their wealth so that they could rejoice together and celebrate the Lord. Remember when you guys have heard people tell you that God in the Old Testament was all grumpy and mean all the time? Don't buy it. Now the second tithe I do think it's just worth thinking about. God did not command austerity here, right? God didn't say, oh, don't do anything that's fancy, because if you do that, then you, you know, you're wasting money. What did God say that they could buy? What they want, and celebrate before the Lord. God commanded wisdom from the people. He commanded them, you guys need to save up. It's like a, like a Christmas club account, right? You know, people do that where they, they just put money in, put money in, put money in, then when the holiday rolls around, they're ready. That's what this is like. God commanded wisdom, saving, joy-filled celebration. The command for the tithe was a way to ensure that every family could participate. Guys, this is beautiful from God. Now, there's a third tithe as well, and it's also beautiful from God. This one was taken every three years. Look, if you're in Deuteronomy 14, look at 28 and 29. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So the third tithe focuses particularly on the needy. The Levites are mentioned, of course, right? They were dependent on the provision of the people. But there's also, again, the Levites, they focus on the temple. They focus on the worship. They focus on the teaching of the word. We know that. The people provide for the Levites. Why? So the Levites can do what God called them to do. But the unique thing about the third tithe, because the Levites are included in the first two as well, is it was for the benefit of other needy folks in the land too. It was to make sure that the nation took care of the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. This was the way that there was um, provision and, and care given to those who could not care for themselves in the land. Now, if you took all three of those tithes that were there in the law together, 
the Israelite would be required to set aside approximately 23.3% of his income. You see how that math works? Two tithes, and then one tithe that's only a third of a tithe because it comes every three years. 23.3%. And what did those tithes do? They provided that so that the temple could continue to operate. They provided for the Levites and the priests to be taken care of. It provided for the needy people in the land who could not take care of themselves. And it provided for each family to save up so they could attend the feasts in Jerusalem and celebrate before the Lord without worry. And the tithes were acts of worship. They declared that God owned the land. They declared that this is God's land and we just live here. They showed that the harvest is God's harvest and we just get to use it. That's what the tithes were about. They showed that the people feared God more than they feared poverty. Do you fear God more than you fear poverty, by the way? The tithes showed that the people valued the worship of God and that they valued the temple and that they valued the poor and that they valued the needy and that they valued those who served them. And of course, because Israel was a nation under the direct rule of God when this was instituted, right? The tithes, you might look at them like the nation's tax system. Now, by the way, does that sound good or bad to you? A tax system that has a flat tax of 23.3%. And you get 10%, you get, you get a full 10% back because it's for you and your family to celebrate before the Lord. God understood governing and taxation better than we do, folks. The, the, the fact is the Lord said, I, I, you're going to give to take care of the religion, you're going to give to take care of the needy, and you're going to give because I want to be sure that you're ready to be able to worship me as a family with the vacation fund. Well, how well did Israel do with this? What do you think? We already know, don't we? We see that the people of Israel neglected their responsibility to tithe, and this was to their detriment. We read Malachi already this morning, right? God said, you guys are robbing me, and that these people were refusing to give. It had significant negative effects on others. Last week we read Nehemiah 13.10. I want to mention it to you again. Nehemiah 13.10 said, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So Nehemiah 13 was focused on a time period around the time of Malachi, around 430, 425 B.C. And, and sometime in that era, Nehemiah found out that the people had stopped giving the proper portions to the Levites. Well, what happens if they won't give the proper portions to the Levites? Then the Levites, who didn't have any funds for themselves, the, the, the Levites who were in, involved in leading in worship and teaching the Word of God and helping the people make the sacrifices and taking care of the temple, since those families had no other source of income, they ran away from Jerusalem to find fields that they could work in so they could feed their families. Now God called the people to repent of this failure to give as was required. By the way, I think though we don't see it in here like I said, do you remember in Malachi 2, the priests were showing favoritism to the rich? Why do you think those wicked priests were showing favoritism to the rich? They wanted to get their bills paid. And so they started, uh, I'll just use the word favoring here. I had other words, but they're not good ones. They started favoring people who might benefit them and mistreating or not caring about people who could not financially benefit them. And that was evil of the priests but it was also evil of the people not to take care of the priests. God promised them, guys, I want you to repent. And God said to the nation, I will bless you if you'll return to doing what you're supposed to do. 
So again, in the Old Testament, the tithe was something that people who worshiped the Lord did even before God made it a part of the law for Israel. As part of the law, the tithe was an act of worship that provided for people in a very sweet way. For those who refused to give in that way, there was judgment because the nation of Israel had agreed they would submit to the law of God and to not give in that way was for them to disobey God. But for everybody who gave rightly, God promised Israel blessing. And now comes the question, what about us? I mean, some of you are wondering that, right? What do we do? Well, let me ask you, are we under the law in exactly the same way Israel was? Not exactly. Not, not in the same way that the Israelite living in the physical land of Israel was. But the law is still good. We know Christ has come. We know Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the entire sacrificial system. We never kill an animal for religious purposes anymore. We, 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 we eat them. That's a whole other topic. We don't go to Jerusalem for Passover or, or Pentecost or trumpets or booths or whatever, right? We, we, we look to the law to find out what God is like. We look to the law to find out what honors God. We look to the law and we see what dishonors God. We look to the law and we see what justice is and what justice isn't. We look to the law and see what sexuality is about and what it's not. We look to the law and see things about marriage that help us. But we're not the people of Israel physically living in that land. We're not the people of Israel physically traveling through the desert needing God to tell us exactly how to dig the right holes for sanitation. We're the church in Christ, under the new covenant. And we ask again, what applies here? Let's be sure that we have the principles clear. Obeying God honors God, yes? We're with that, okay. Disobeying God dishonors God, yes? Yes, good. We want to be obedient to the commands of God for God's glory, and that applies to all of us. So then the question is, what about giving? What about tithing? Are we required to give exactly one-tenth of everything we have to the Lord. Well, that, especially when it starts being, being pronounced as a requirement, was part of the Old Testament law. And we're not bound by that any more than we're bound by the command to circumcise a son on the eighth day or, or to uh, keep the old feast or something like that. Jesus fulfilled that kind of law on our behalf completely, perfectly, forever. But... The first tithe that we saw happened outside of the law. The principles even in the law haven't changed. So what do we do? What do we assume? I think we assume that God wants his people to give as an act of worship. We want that God wants his people to give to support ministry. God wants his people to give to care for those in need. God wants his people to give in order to give a portion of what they've been given back to God because we are only God's stewards. This is God's planet. We just live here. And we should never think, by the way, that just because the 10th was in the Old Testament law that it's irrelevant. I don't think that's true. So what are the basics in the New Testament? If you look at the Gospels, you don't learn a whole lot about how Christians give. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus talks about the tithe, but he's talking to scribes and Pharisees who were saying that they were under the Old Testament system. Jesus is saying, you guys are really good about being meticulous with your tithes, that's good, but they're cruel and they're nasty and they're unjust and they don't love God. That did not come off good. Jesus condemned the scribes and the Pharisees for the way that they tinkered with ways not to give. Look at Mark 7, 9-13 for that. Jesus told the rich young man, by the way, when the rich young man came to Jesus, sell everything you've got and give it away. But that does appear to be something that was particularly focused on that man who loved his wealth and did not love God. So what are New Testament believers supposed to do? Are we supposed to give 10%? Are we supposed to give 1%? 0%? 23.3%? What are we supposed to give? Because we are supposed to worship God. We are supposed to support the ministry of the church. What are we supposed to do? I want to give you a couple of New Testament principles that we can find in the epistles that will help you to know what to do. And at the same time, you are going to have to do heart work with the Lord. 
1 Corinthians, and if, you, if you're using your Bibles now, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians, and we'll look at a couple things in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians before we're done. You still awake, by the way? Yeah. Oh, good. I'm so glad. It brightens my day. 1 Corinthians 16, way there toward the end. 1 Corinthians 16, starting at the beginning of that chapter, Paul says this. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week. By the way, what day is that? That's Sunday. That's Lord's Day. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So in the passage here, Paul gives the churches, the church in Corinth, the idea of giving intentionally, systematically, and in proportion to their income, not haphazardly. Now, this is a passage that is focused on a particular need that is being met. They're giving to particularly meet a need, but I don't think that the principle is unwise. I think there's something here that we don't want to let go of. These people gave every week. Now, again, it might be something you give once a month, depending on how your finances are structured, but these people gave on a regular basis as a part of Lord's Day worship. They gave systematically in that regard. They gave as each had prospered. That is giving proportionately, right? By the way, the Old Testament, the tithe, the tithe is a proportionate kind of giving. I give a part, a percentage of what I have gained from the Lord. Those who get more from God give more. That's what a percentage does. It handles it fairly. Uh, so again, I think you can look at that and just see a principle here that this is a part of worship. This is a week-to-week, regular thing. It's proportionate to what God has given you, and, and it's something that Christians do. What else do we know about giving? God also calls His people to faithfully give in order to support those who are doing full-time gospel ministry. Um, if you flip back to chapter 9, you can see this in 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians. Um, this is also the part that makes me uncomfortable because I'm the one who does the work, I mean, who is paid to do ministry. And so I, I don't ever want to come off self-serving. But again, I've got to give you the word of God. It's my job. 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14 says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. As a side note, 1 Timothy 5.17, which is probably going to speak about financial issues, says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. All right, let let me, again, I'm just going to try to be real here. You should know this. No pastor should use his position to try to become rich. I I, I do not, I'm not seeking private jets. I don't know about the other elders. I haven't asked them, but I'm not. No pastor should use his position and influence to try to become rich. Rich And you guys, again, we all know rich is a relative term, but I think you, you know enough to know the difference, don't you? But if it's possible, the church that has a faithful pastor should see to it that he and his family have what they need so they can live comfortably, so they can faithfully minister, so they can show hospitality. If I were speaking to a church that, that wasn't the one I was serving, I would look at you, I would be like, look, All of you guys expect your pastor to have an open home that you could visit. You expect the pastor and his family to care for you, so care for him. Make sure he can do this without it being a fear. 
You, you need to support a pastor so that the pastor is not distracted by financial need. That principle rolls through the scriptures. I don't want to say a lot more about it because, again, it's awkward as could be for me, but do you understand what I'm saying? God also wants us to give how? With joy and with an eye toward the blessings of God. I don't mean earthly blessings, by the way. We found out in Sunday school, you don't always get earthly blessings for doing what's right, do you? If you miss Sunday school, you miss some fun things to think about this morning. But these are things God wants you to know. He will bless his children when they faithfully obey him, yes? And, 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 and he will bless his children who faithfully give. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. I think this is as far as we'll go this morning. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. The point is this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Take note of that phrase, please. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So listen to me very, very carefully here. This part doesn't make me nervous anymore. Never give money to get money. I don't care what the shiny-faced guy on the television set tells you if you turn on the religious channel. Never give money because you want to get more money. Not in the church. These verses are not intended to stoke sinful greed. Prosperity preachers, people like Joel Osteen, people like, again, some of the guys with the big hair and the thick makeup, are often, they'll, they'll look at these verses and they'll use these verses and they'll tell you if you just plant a seed with your gift, the Lord will bless you with a bunch more money. That is not a biblical promise. Don't give money to get health or material blessing from God. But what does God say? If you give freely and cheerfully, if you give sacrificially and systematically, if you give to the glory of God, you can know that God is going to remember and God is going to bless you because God rewards all genuine, worshipful obedience to His commands. Now that blessing may come in the next life, dear friends, but it will not be lost. So then the question is, must a Christian give a tithe, particularly the 10% number? No. Not legally. Christ fulfilled the law for us. But must a Christian give? Yes! How? Out of joy. God loves what kind of giver? Cheerful giver. You know the Greek word behind that word is the same word we get our word hilarious from? I'm not kidding you. God loves a hilarious giver. You're giving like you're nuts and people are like, oh my goodness, that's crazy. God says, I love that. Give full of cheer for the glory of God, for the good of the ministry. We give to worship. And we should be intentional about it, right? We should be regular about it in our giving. We should all be giving a portion back to God of what God has given to us. That's, that's a principle, even if it's not an actual law. What did 1 Corinthians 9, 7 say to us? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We give what we decide to give without compulsion. There's not a sticker that says, thou shalt giveth this much. 
The elders and I don't look at your, at your tax return and your giving statement and say, oh, they're not up to the right percentage. We don't do that. But you know what? You give best when you give cheerfully. You give best when you make a decision and you keep it. You give best when you give in proportion to how God has blessed you. And when I was a young Christian, I was taught. I was taught that the first tenth of my income was to be given to the church in order to provide for the ongoing expenses of the church and its ministry. How many of you were taught that? It's not a bad thing to be taught. It's a really good, smart, rule of thumb kind of practice. It's a good practice. It's just not law. Um, goodness. It, it, a church ought to be able to set her annual budget if we knew exactly what the income of the body was and say, well, 10% of what everybody makes, there's a church budget for the year. Now, since the average Christian in the United States gives around 1.6% of his or her income, you would know that if the church actually gave in a 10% pattern, you would never, ever, ever see financial trouble in the body. You just wouldn't. Even if it's not a legal obligation, it's a good rule of thumb. 10% is a fine number. It's, it follows an example we see in Scripture of people freely choosing to give that kind of gift. And I was taught that if you give beyond that tenth, there's like an offering, like a free will offering, you know, just giving to God. That, that, that's how we would give to take care of special situations, special needs, maybe other ministries that you love. But the first primary part of your giving does go to the local church first because you've got to keep the local church functioning. I don't know. I, I'm not going to tell you a percentage to give. But I'll say this. Give, Christians. Give as worship. But don't think you can get by with giving 1% or 5% or 10% or 50% because God owns all that you are. You are a steward of God's property. So see to it that you worship God by giving toward His glory for the sake of His ministry, freely, cheerfully, systematically. God made us. God owns the universe. God has the right to ask for our all. And if you've surrendered your life to the Lord, you've got to make it a practice that you will give God your very best. Give Him your tithe. Give Him your worship. Give Him your, your talents. Time, worship, talents, resources. And when you think about the question of do I tithe? It's a good starter rule, but it's not required. But it's a great way to start giving God all that you are. Does that make sense? Again, I'm not hammering a percentage as law at you. Maybe you and yours in the situation you're in cannot give that particular percentage. Okay? Give your best. You look yourself in the mirror, you look at your budget, you look at how you spend, and you ask, am I giving God my best? Go ahead. I would be very surprised to see any of us say, I am going to continually give God my best and I will continually be satisfied with giving God less than the people of the Old Testament are asked to give. But I would also suggest, again, well, we want to do what we can do to free ourselves to give faithfully, regularly, proportionately to how God has blessed us. Why give? Give because God is worthy. Give because of the joy of honoring the Lord. Give because it contributes to the continuing of the ministry. Give because it demonstrates that you love the Lord and the spreading of the gospel more than you love the treasures this world has to offer. Give because you love the Lord who gave His own Son so that you could be forgiven. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus... There's a real part of me that wants to say, I'm sorry you came today, but I'm not. It's good that you understand that those who follow Jesus, we give Jesus our all. That's what being a Christian's about. But listen to me. I'm not asking you who don't know Jesus to give anything because no amount of money you could give in any offering will make any difference in your eternity. The church is not after your money. Christians give because we love God because we've been forgiven by God. And I want you to know that you can be forgiven by God and it will not cost you one penny. It just costs you everything. That's what I want for you. 
God has made you. You and I owe God our lives, but none of us has ever given God our all rightly. God offers mercy. God offers forgiveness. God offers a relationship with him. And you get that relationship by coming to Jesus in faith. How do you come to Jesus in faith? Believe that you're not as perfect as God. Are any of you struggling with that today? We're pretty, yeah. Understand you've got to have the perfection of God if you want heaven when you die. Know this. Jesus came, God in the flesh, to bring you forgiveness. Jesus died to pay the price for your sins. Jesus rose from the grave and Jesus is alive right now. And anybody who comes to Jesus in faith, turning from sin, surrendering to God, anyone who comes to Jesus in faith will be forgiven and counted righteous before God. If you don't know Jesus, I don't want your money. God wants your soul. So turn from trying to be your own master. Turn from trying to drive your life. Turn from thinking you know the best about right and wrong. Come to Jesus in faith. Ask for his grace. And you're going to find that God has forgiven you and granted life to you as a free gift by his grace. And then you can begin the process of loving God with your all. Let's bow together and let's pray. Father, here's what we'll say, Lord. All of us in this room who are Christians, all of us who are believers, have already said to you, I surrender all that I am to you. All of us who are Christians have surrendered to your Lordship. So God, for all of us who are Christians, we ask that you be the Lord of our lives in everything, including how we sing and how we pray and how we study and how we give and how we live. Convince us by your word and its principles how we can be wholehearted for you in everything. God, if there's an ounce of this sermon that is me and not you. This is one I would really ask you to erase and correct that from our memories because God, this is so hard to get right. Father, show us you and help us surrender to your Lordship. And for anyone who doesn't know you, help them know this is not a sermon about money. It's about whether or not we will say you are Lord, and help those who don't know you to come to you in faith. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.